Welcome to the Better World of Work podcast by Talent. I'm your host, Ian Tyler, Talent's Group Chief Strategy Officer. And today I am very excited to be joined by Anna Gowdridge from 100% Human at Work. And rather than me tell you all about what 100% Human at Work is, I'm going to hand over to Anna to introduce um, what is 100% Human at Work. So, Anna. Hello and welcome and thank you very much for joining us. Hi Ian, thanks for having me. Um, I'll just give you a little bit of background on 100% Human at Work. It's an initiative that was co-founded by Virgin Unite, which is the charitable foundation of the Virgin Group and the Branson family and an organisation called The B Team, which is a collective of business leaders who are really thinking about how you have a plan B for business because plan A hasn't worked and how business can have a positive impact in the world rather than a negative one. And we've worked with them for a number of years and we just felt really, really strongly that one of the biggest impacts business can have in the world is on our own people, on our employees and our, on our kind of worker communities. Mm. And mm. so 100% Human was founded with the idea of thinking, well, how do we humanize work? We talk about the future of work a lot. And so we want to drive a global movement that is going to build a future of work that serves humanity and that serves people rather than having negative impacts on them. Mm. And that's what we're trying to do. We've got community members, businesses, about 500 around the world do lots of work in Australia, the UK, the US, and starting to have conversations in Africa and other regions. And what we very, very much want to be is a movement that is driving action and change and not just conversations around this. Mm, mm. And I guess um, there's never more um, a prominent moment in a if I'm able to say a post-COVID world, uh, whatever that yes. kind of means, um, I would imagine that the impetus around this and the way that the kind of agendas around future of work, future work, as well as kind of the evolution of what is 100% human at work and how that's evolving, I can imagine that... Um, the agenda and the the order of the agenda has changed somewhat r remarkably. I think it has. Um, and, I mean, we've been talking about this for the best part of eight years now. We've um, mm. grown from an early conversation with a handful of CEOs to a global movement. But the reality is until COVID, a lot of the people who naturally select into that movement were the forward-thinking companies. They were the ones who were doing great things, mm. who were testing the boundaries of what work was, who were putting people at the heart of everything. And what we found with the changes that COVID forced companies to have is you have a whole new set of companies who weren't necessarily the early adopters and the true believers, but have realised that they have to change and mm. that they needed to have communities around them to help work out what was happening. And so many, many companies have 
long resisted flexible working suddenly overnight there was no arguing against it we all had to work flexibly and everyone had to be able to go home and we suddenly had to accept that employees were balancing childcare with work because mm, mm. schools were shut and that had to happen suddenly ceos were much more willing to talk about mental health and how that might be impacting their employees and that's being discussed at board level and so I feel like the world of work shifted very very fundamentally it brought a lot of new people into these conversations and more open to change mm. i do feel that there's a moment in the world right now that we need to seize on that and really work out how we can make some of those changes longer lasting because mm. as as with you i always feel a bit nervous saying a post covid world yes. let's hope it is but my worry is that what will happen is then companies will side backwards and mm. when you think about i know the kind of flexibility and the future of the office a lot of companies that conversation now has come down to okay well what are the rules we abide by do you get to go into two days a week or three days a week and mm. what are the putting structures back into it and i think if and that's great companies need to work out how they do that but for me there's a bigger conversation kind of what is work what is the office for what do we come together for rather mm. than just going back to okay we we've, we've got control again how do we build a new structure that works for us actually mm. can we ask ourselves deeper questions mm. about what does work for the future mean what what how do we structure it but why are we structuring things in this way and how do we get the best out of people whilst giving them autonomy and flexibility and all those good things and allowing them to continue to balance family life with work life. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you touched on something before um, around, you know, mental health being very much a conversation in, in, a, in, a, in a boardroom. Um, and when you think about these work practices, flexible working, the way that everybody's kind of adopted and embraced um, essentially what is now a level of, um, I guess, um, working autonomously in being measured on outputs, collaborating with my um, with, with my co-workers, collaborating with my clients or my customers. But, but interestingly, it's that bleeding between work and life that has seemed to have really, you touched on it before about, you know, all of a sudden you're juggling kids at home because schools are closed and the, the the kind of impact that has on a mental health agenda within a workplace that it is now a topic at a, a boardroom level are, are you seeing and hearing more about mental health and well-being on the corporate agenda when you look at obviously the the reach that uh, 100% human has actually got I think Yes, to to an extent, and I, I'm kind of wary of it because during COVID when we were all at home and kids were there and families and people were isolated, it was very high on the mental health, on the agenda, and we talked to businesses all the time during that period and all of them were wanting to know what are you doing, what can we do to support the mental health mm. of employees. I feel like we it's going down the agenda again. And what we want to be doing okay. is thinking about how do you make sure it stays high on the agenda? Because there's some 
horrifying stats out there around mental health. Um, if some of the things we've been reading recently suggest that um, a third of millennials and Gen Zs taking time off work due to stress and anxiety caused by mm. the pandemic. But more frighteningly, um, among the two thirds who didn't take time off, four in 10 deemed themselves to be stressed all the time, but chose to work through it. So the, we've got people in the workplace who are constantly stressed and anxious mm. and are trying to work through it. And that is not good for them and their long-term health, but it's also not good for them as productive, well employees who are contributing mm. to an organization. And so mm. if CEOs and boards don't think this is important, they're not realizing how big an impact it is probably having on their companies. And we're doing quite a lot of work to think about how do we keep this on the agenda? How do we keep senior level board CEOs, leadership teams talking about it? And also, how do we reduce some of the stigma around it? Because mm, mm. it's it's challenging as a business to help your staff with mental health if they don't feel comfortable talking about it. And I had a really interesting conversation with a colleague the other day about how I would feel comfortable talking about it in my workplace. And, mm. um, and then I was like, oh, but then they'd want to look after me. And then they'd probably <laughs> reduce my workload out of mm. kindness because they mm. wouldn't want to put stress mm. on me. And is that going to then, how do I get that back? Because how far will the kindness right. go? So I think it's a very tricky topic. Yeah. And I realized that I'd be nervous, that I'd be cared for too much. Yeah. And therefore it would impact my job. So there's, so, yeah, those unintended consequences, really, as a result. It, yeah. Exactly. But I, I do feel that what, we want to do with the 100% human community is understand that it's a really tricky topic and work as a collective of organizations to learn and test and work out the right way to do things. And that's mm. the power really of doing it as part of a movement, not as an individual company, yeah. is you can tap into the knowledge of what other people have done and what's worked well and mm. We encourage companies to the term we use is experiment. Experiments, and yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a bit wary of that in mental health because I feel like we need to be getting the experts in the room. You know, it's yeah. a bit different than an experiment around flexibility. It's not something really, you play with, yeah. Exactly. So we mm. want experts to weigh in, but at the same time we want to encourage companies to be doing things and then sharing with a broader community because mm. whilst I think there's real business benefit to it because having healthy well employees is great for the bottom line but also great it benefits your own business but let's benefit employees around the world by sharing some of the best ideas and working mm. out what we can do to drive change mm. i think there's um a very interesting moment in time scenario for everybody on the planet which is um one this kind of sense of vulnerable leadership We've all been forced into changing of behaviours. But there's something else which is really, really unique, which is for the first time ever, we've got four generations in the workplace. When you think about how we approach these subjects of mental health and who would open up or might open up or absolutely might not and run in the complete opposite direction, when you think about that generational gap wants and needs around those different types of cohorts and demographics within organizations that's a very interesting conversation to try and tackle yeah and it's, 
for me, the future of leadership is going to be the key there. And I suspect some of the leaders who maybe came through the old school business schools, that kind of MBA model, that this is how you structure leadership and this is how you do it and it's command and control and it's mm. top down, they're going to discover that that really doesn't work um, in, in future workplaces. You've got a generation coming through who will be far more open about these things and in a great way because they've they've come up with social media and the ability to talk about and have conversations on online and in different and new ways. And so they're going to expect to talk about this, but it's also a generation, next generation in the workplace, a big part of their formative years was in lockdown. Mm -hmm. So this is a generation coming into the workplace who maybe at the age of 17 weren't going and trying to get into nightclubs on a Friday night with their friends. They were locked in a house with their parents for Mm. A year, two years, depending where you based. I mean, places in Australia, I know it was, like, it was a really long period of mm. time. And mm. so right. this generation, I think that will have an impact on them in the longer term and what they want from a workplace. But it's also a generation that's going to come into the workplace and experience it very differently because jobs are changing. And so they may have six jobs at any one time. Who knows? They may... Yeah. Um, they may change jobs every two or three months. They may be a gig employee who is tapping into different places and therefore they don't have one job that they, they identify as their employer. And for me, that's going to be really interesting how leaders lead and engage and can get great things from people who maybe don't have that traditional employee-employer relationship that we would recognise from yeah. our careers that mm. goes... I'm making assumption on both of our ages here, but mm, we, we mm. came into jobs where you expected to work for a company, you'd be there for X number of years, and then you'd probably go on to another employer. And actually what work looks like for the next generation, I feel is going to be completely different and uh, um, yeah. an interesting conversation to see how it develops. I think so. And, you know, if we think about those generations, I mean, within our own workplace we have that personify where I, I can see that in different offices and different locations around the world and you know what you tend to find is that culture um for these different generations good culture in organizations when you demystify difficult or what have notionally been seen as taboo subjects good culture means that the conversations are actually given some air and oxygen and allowed to happen um, which isn't true for many organisations. And there seems to have been this industry play around that in terms of, well, in a maybe a financial institution, that's not how we operate, or in a government agency, that's not how we operate. Well, I say, well, I think that's a bit of BS. It doesn't matter because the people within those organisations or business units or teams actually foster the culture that do allow those types of conversations to occur. Um, and it's grassroots stuff that I think really do start to then drive different types of acceptance and collaboration and, you know, conversations around what make people feel more comfortable in their own skin and about talking about vulnerable subjects. Um, and I know, for, obviously, I've had the benefit of attending a, a number of the 100% Human at Work gatherings. And what I see with senior people, they're quite happy to lean into these types of conversations in these rooms. You know, it's important to them. Um, and then it's so therefore, how do you spread 
this wonderful thing that you've seeded and planted that is now growing just to be so much more pervasive. Yeah. I, I And I would agree. You're getting senior people who do want to have these conversations. I also think there's a difference between kind of culture and values and who we are and what we put on the wall mm. and then what's experienced within mm. an organisation. So quite often um, I've seen lots of organisations who have their kind of culture statements and their values and this is who we are and they spend a lot of time putting that up and it's out in the world and it's on the website and it's not necessarily what's lived within an organisation. Mm. And so mm. for me that's where the grassroots stuff it's really important because what's coming up from the employees and their lived experience can be quite different. And mm. to go back to the next generation and the idea of social media and all those different influences that we've got, this is a generation who can also talk about their workplace experiences yeah. in a way that you've never had before. Mm. And because the, there's more agility in the jobs market. People will transfer. They might have multiple employers. The, the shape of a job is changing. Actually, suddenly your employer brand, which isn't a term I particularly like, but I, I think people know what I mean when I say that, mm. but it becomes very, very important to you attracting talent mm -hmm. and it becomes something that you can't really lie about by putting pretty words up on your website that say well, how great a people culture you are. You yeah. actually have to live it. 100%. And in a way, that hopefully is going to push some of these companies who don't come to this naturally to develop better cultures. Mm. And that's quite a tricky thing to do because if it's not authentic, if it's not really lived, if your CEO isn't really accessible and open, then your culture is going to reflect that, whether mm. you have the nice words and the mm. values or not. Mm. Mm. Totally agree. We have a saying internally where, you know, sometimes you can identify whether the words and the music don't match. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the kind of coined phrase that uh, we've, we've adopted because we've got the standpoint of looking at different businesses and supporting them in the attraction and engagement of talent, given what we do. And, um, you know, sometimes the aspiration is all there, but the reality, those lived experiences can be somewhat different. But the good thing is when I think about what the entire, you know, human at work movement is all about, that's grounded in your kind of five core pillars of quality, respect, purpose, growth, and belonging. The essence of that will never change. When you think about good companies and good people and good cultures, that's why I really like those five core pillars of what the 100% human at work movement's all about. Um, and I think equality, respect, purpose, growth, and belonging is something that resonates with everybody as humans, um, as well as, companies and organizations trying to do good in the world um yeah so it, it's really compelling and for me we've done a lot of thinking in the last couple of years particularly around the belonging element mm. of that because so much of company culture can be impacted by do i feel this is a place i belong um and that's going to impact my mental health and that's going to impact our efforts towards equality that's going to impact how much I can grow within an organization so that mm. getting that belonging piece right for me 
is really, really critical at the heart of it. And that is a challenging thing to do. But we're seeing companies make such great strides. We're seeing such good work around kind of equality, racial equity, um, mm. LGBT inclusion and rights. And for me, if we can get those things growing and get people feeling like actually this is an organisation where I can truly be who I am, I don't have to um, cover up any aspect to myself, then then we're going to see thriving workplaces and cultures that really grow and allow people to contribute in the best way they possibly can. But mm. that's also quite challenging. Quite often when we think about diversity and inclusion, we think about targets and quotas, and it doesn't necessarily get to the how can I be me when I get here? Um, yeah. And I don't have the answer to that, but I think the belonging piece for me should be at the core of so many company cultures, if it possibly can be. And, and so, uh, and obviously I'm not going to kind of press you on, let's try and solve that problem right now. Uh, but <laughs> however, <you. laughs> however, I'm quite intrigued by that one because you're absolutely right. That sense of belonging um, people want to work with people that they feel really comfortable with, that they feel challenged by in, in, in a positive sense. They also want to feel a connection to the vision and the values of the organisation as to, you know what, my contribution, my eight hours or my discretionary effort of 10 or 12 hours in a day, whatever it might be, really makes a difference. That purpose-led work. Um, I think is really, really important. And people can have a sense of belonging to a company mission, but more importantly, they have to have a sense of belonging to being actually feeling like they're part of the organisation, part of something that's doing some good in the world. Um, yeah. I, tricky. I, I would I would agree. And it is tricky. And for me, where it's really interesting is for companies who – we get to do quite interesting jobs. We feel um, quite purpose-led, quite mission-based. But where I think it's most interesting is when you talk to companies who maybe have manufacturing staff who are on a production line all day and mm. who are therefore not doing senior roles that kind of are knowledge-based, but actually yeah. how do you connect them with the purpose of the organization and i i love it when i see companies who are actually in those spaces because i feel like if you're a google or an ido you've got all your beautiful offices and people can work wherever they want to but actually if you're working for a food production company on the production line you can't work from where you want to quite often you've got companies like that who um you may have one human on the production line who is interacting with machines for the yeah. whole day. Yeah. And we see some really beautiful examples of where companies are thinking about those employees and thinking about how do we design your day so it supports your mental health if you're not working with other humans because quite often for many of us that human interaction is really vital but also how can you connect those employees to what you're doing as a company and so they can feel the purpose even though their job might be a repetitive manufacturing job and um, a company we were speaking to recently were talking about how they have a program 
to employ ex-offenders. They work with a charity to do it and create support mechanisms. And what they ask of staff is to be mentors and coaches to those mm. people coming into the workplace. So even though they're still doing their day job, they're actually involved in some of the social impacts their organization is having and they take those responsibilities really really seriously it's a really important part of their job but also they try to think about their employees as whole people so mm. how can they help them achieve their dreams that might be non-work related so yeah. great that you help us achieve our purpose as a company how do we help you achieve your purpose in as an individual. And at times that means helping you train for a job that's completely unrelated to us. But mm. I think it's a really nice way of doing that because your role might seem quite limited, but so how do we think of you as the broader human being and, mm. and support your growth wherever it may take you? Yeah. And for me, that's a really interesting thing for the future of work because so often we only think about our employees within our organization. And for me in the future, actually thinking about their longer term career beyond your walls is going to be really, really important because people may, as I said earlier, they may have six jobs. Do you often you think, oh, well, I don't want to train someone in X if they're going to leave a year from now because then I'm losing my investment. And in my mind, actually thinking longer term about we, how we help employees to be agile and resilient and constantly changing and able to adapt in the world it's going to be critical and they may take that to the next organization but hopefully we'll be inheriting those skills from others and it will just create workforces that are highly adaptable and we won't I don't think have employees who are with us for 15 years and mm. therefore it's worth us putting them through their MBA now because yeah. I'll get 10 years of value out of it. So yeah. I do think on the growth piece, we're going to have to really rethink really what that means it. and what yeah. we do. And skills are changing and jobs are changing and what we need in those jobs is changing fast at schools and not teaching the skills we need employees to have five Absolutely years from now. Not. Yeah. And so that's going to become so much more important for employers to be thinking, how do we help people to constantly reskill throughout their careers? And I mean, there's a massive can of worms, which is skill gap, education, employer, employee. I mean, there's a whole nother conversation, right? But fundamentally, yeah. training, skilling, reskilling, retooling, redeployment, uh, capturing people at an educational level at really early on that supports, you know, high school or secondary education and tertiary education for people coming out of, and I've got an 18-year-old daughter doing exams as we speak. So I understand. And she's like, the skills that I'm learning now, I'm never going to use them again. Um, you know, it's like, how do we get those skills? How do we kind of capture um, the career paths? How do we capture um, a map? you know this the six roles um the skills the soft skills a horrible term but you understand what i'm saying um and how they're cross transferable into different industries different worlds um that maybe not might not even be on anybody's mind right now but i've trained in one job but six to ten years from now i'll be doing something completely different i'm an example of that i was in the army and now i do what i do 
completely different. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's really interesting, that whole educational piece um, and getting people ready for the world of work, I think is fascinating as well. But it's a problem. Yeah. I, th- I think it's going to be a massive challenge. And, well, if you think about 30, 40 years ago, so the life of a skill could be 30 years. Yeah. So you you learned to be an accountant at university, and then that skill took you through most of your career. And now the life of the skill, well, as you, your daughter said, she's not going to use a lot of the skills she's learning. And for me, there's an element to which business needs to be working with the education sector because fundamentally education needs to be equipping people um, with really core skills around adaptability and resilience and the ability to change. Um, And some of those creative skills about kind of program management and and project-based work rather than there's no point me learning to code in a certain soft programming language because that will, before I finish learning it, that will be obsolete. It'll be something else. And actually Mm. probably five years from now, we'll just, we won't type in programming. We'll talk to computers. We'll, we'll, that's how Mm. we'll create new programming. And so actually if I'm adaptable and I'm able to project manage and do multiple things, that's going to be critical, but also employers will have to understand that the structure of a career or a life where you go through education, through work, and then into retirement has really changed. Mm-hmm. That education piece is going to have to happen throughout the course yeah. of your life. It's yeah. not something that happens at the beginning mm-hmm. uh, before you go into the working world. Mm-hmm. And also many of us will not, retire in the way that mm. we thought we the traditional might yeah context yeah. yeah hit 65 off i go to the golf course um <laughs> that there, there'll be different ways of working and it might not be a full-time job but many employers are looking at how they create structures that keep people in the workforce for longer that enable people to have part-time work or different types of contracts that it, it is fundamentally changing and so those the idea that we had those three stages of life, I, I feel has gone now. Mm. And employers need to be thinking, okay, well, we are as much part of the education system as school and university was in the mm. past. And how do we as employers meet that need? And it isn't by sending people on courses once a year to learn mm. project management skills. It needs to be more yeah. creative than that. Absolutely. And, you know, as a a global skills economy that we are, therefore, always learning needs to be the mantra, Um, always evolving. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So tell me, where where is 100% human at work moving? Where, where do you see this kind of, you know, if you go back to when it was first originated, to you know, where we've got to, we had the COVID blip where we couldn't get out and do the gatherings and keeps, you know, sowing the seeds as in that in-person type environment. But then when you think about that from now forward looking, where, where, what would be the ambition and the aspiration? 
Well, as I, I said at the beginning, one of the things we're very, very focused on is how are we driving action and change um, mm. and how can we understand that that's happening in the world. That, that's an incredibly difficult thing to achieve. Yeah, yeah. We, we will host a gathering of businesses, we'll talk about ideas, we'll brainstorm new ideas, and then how do you – we're a small team. We don't have the ability to then go off into all those businesses and say, right, what are you doing now? What are mm. you changing? And so – what we're looking at are what are the tools that can potentially drive change. And one of the things we've been working on is a diagnostic tool. And we've been building it with the community for the last few years. It, it's a challenging thing to do because, A, we're not trying to replace the best companies to work for, great workplaces type certifications. They exist. They're great. They do what they should do. And we're not adding value in the world if we replicate them. And also it's hard because we're trying to think about the future. Mm. And so always I can't evolving. necessarily <laughs> ask you, to, this is what good looks like for the future. Mm. Um, but we're, we're coming up with a framework that we want employers to use to assess themselves. So it's going to be a set of questions that employers can really use to challenge their assumptions about their organization. And for me, that's going to be critical because you you see a lot of these trends and I will talk to a lot of CEOs who will say, yeah, our company's all over this. We're, we're doing great. We're, yeah, yeah, we're flexible. Oh, yeah, no, we're, we're really thinking about future skills. And the reality is that they're not. And so we're trying to create a framework for them that it, that will help them to look under the bonnet, really, to say, mm. okay, what well, are we doing this? And is this part of our board reporting? Is this how are our managers incentivized on the right things that will drive human behaviors? Um, mm. Are we transparent in a number of different ways? And so we're hoping that is the next stage in our evolution, that we create yeah. a tool that will help to drive action, but also will give us real insight into what is actually happening in the working world, how future-looking our business is. Um, and that's going to be a tool for employers, but ultimately we'd probably like to take that a step further so that we're then asking employees because, as I said, many CEOs truly believe that people are their greatest asset and they're doing all these great things, but how that translates into culture on a day-to-day -day basis is often very different in reality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I've, I've got another question for you, which is, you, you know, the, the whole essence of um, why we're having this conversation um, is really intrinsically linked to what we call as part of our company vision, um, empowering people to build a better world of work for all. And when I kind of ask you this, really keen to get your view just because of the interesting vantage point that you've got with the different companies and the exposure that you've had. But what does a better world of work look like for you? And I'm conscious I've just put you on the spot there. That's fine. Um, well, actually... I, I think for me, what it looks like is the two words you then didn't use at the end there, the for all. Um, and what I see a lot in the world is you've got amazing companies that are brilliant to work for, and then you have terrible companies that treat people really badly. And for me, a kind of better world of work is one that 
is open to people in all industries, all levels, to your gig economy workers, to your freelancers, to your mums who work and dads who are working part-time, to people of all races and genders. And so actually if we crack this, and I'm not saying that's going to be done anytime (laughs) soon, but the for-all piece for me is really, really critical. Mm. Um, I also... We've had a lot of conversations in the last 12 months about what are the levers of change. I, I was looking at some uh, World Economic Forum research uh, the other day and gender equality, for example, at the current rate of progress, it's another 136 years before we wow. achieve gender equality. So whilst we've got lots of things in the world that suggest there's a business case for this and we know it's the right thing and it will make companies more productive and it will add value, we're still not cracking it. And so for me, the better working world is going to be shaped once corporate incentives are changed. And so once boards, once investment firms, uh, once leadership teams are actually incentivized and measured on things that humanise the workplace, for me, that's where you're going to drive real change because suddenly it's not words anymore. It's how your company is run. It's part of your corporate reporting. It's it's part of how you function as a business or a charity or whatever type of organisation you are that you're held to account on some of these things. Mm. And so... That's where I think a better working world comes from. There's lots of different ways that could show up, but if it's at the core of how you're measured and how your business is structured and how you report on success, then that's where things change. But for me, it is so critical that it is for all because it's great if I work in a creative office and can come and go as I please, but that's very different if you're – a gig employee who is essentially working for less than minimal wage and has no control over their own life and no social protections and no benefits and all those pieces. So mm. making sure it, it's it's reaching all those different groups, not just the people, the knowledge workers in offices. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, every time I have a conversation with you, um, I always kind of take a moment just to kind of reflect and go, what could I be doing more of just to get that sense of more knowledge, um, more impact? Let's just do better. You always give me that sense of there's so much more to learn. And I just want to say a huge, huge thank you for your time um, and, you know, just your your contribution to this podcast. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you when the 100% Human at Work movement lands on the shores of Australia. Um, where can somebody listening to this find out a little bit more about you? Here's a unashamed plug for you. For you, um, is there somewhere that uh, we can point people toward um, where you can learn a little bit more about what 100% Human is? Yes, there is. Uh, we we have a website, um, so we would love people to visit that and take a look at some of the work. We're always keen for new companies to get involved, but what we try to do online is share some of the stories, some of the case studies, some of the experiments. Um, so it's human dash 
at work.org. And so we'd love people to go there and get in touch and learn about what we're doing. And for us, it's great, as I said, that we've got companies who are the leaders in this space, who are the innovators, who, who are testing and trying new things. But for me, where success is going to be is in growing and reaching more and more companies and bringing more people in who are trying to learn and trying to do different things and who we can help to get there. Absolutely. So, Anna, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you uh, very soon in the coming weeks. And again, um, you take care of yourself. And for all of our listeners out there, please get involved. This is something that's uh, certainly very close to our organization's heart and, and mine personally. So please uh, do get over to the, the website and have a look. And Anna, thank you once again. Um, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers.